Father, we thank you so much that your word speaks to us. And as we look at this chapter in Ecclesiastes, we thank you that Solomon, we think, wrote um, clearly, honestly. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to understand what it has to say this afternoon. Father, that we might learn, but Lord, we might have a right perspective on life and so a right perspective on you because of it. Amen. So we've made it to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Um, it's been hard going at times. In chapter 1 we saw how death puts an end to our repetitive quest for greatness and gain. Um, it's like chasing after bubbles. When we grab them, they pop. And instead it teaches us simply that we're part of the generation that comes after the last and before the next. In chapter 2, we saw Solomon, the king, who had everything, and how he explained that his pursuits and pleasures after for, for gain in this world, well, they just slipped through his fingers with little lasting satisfaction. That whatever life offers, if we look to find ultimate satisfaction in it, we'll be disappointed. We'll be left asking the question, life... What's the point? And we saw how our experience in this world is frustrating because it's been made that way because of the curse in Genesis 3. And we saw how so often our endeavours, our efforts are unfulfilling ultimately because in our sin, we take good things and we make them ultimate things. That's the experience of life under the sun. That's the repeated phrase that Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes uses for life in this world. But we've seen in both weeks that ultimately Jesus offers deliverance from a frustrating world and our hopeless endeavours. But we get to this point and there's a slight danger that reading chapters 1 and 2 we see, sink into some kind of deep pessimism. We say, I'm not going to find joy in the things of life. We say, I'm not going to progress. I'm not going to gain. I'm not going to grasp life. So I'll just have to battle through in this fallen world and hope and hope for the day that Jesus comes back. And here, Genesis 3 is brilliant because it gives us the reason why life now isn't just that perspective. It's not just joyless, it's not just heartache waiting for that day. Chapter 3 pulls together something of the bigger picture. The individual seasons of time. It begins to explain why actually our lack of control in our circumstances is the very thing that can give us hope. I've said before, I've loved looking at Ecclesiastes because it's really gritty is real, you read it and it, it makes sense, you feel it. And chapter 3 begins to help us see how we cope when we feel out of control, when we're frustrated by our present experience, when we're struggling. And actually, not just how we cope, but how we flourish, even in light of living in a world that is still subject to the curse of Genesis 3. So maybe... This Sunday afternoon, that's exactly how you feel in your circumstances right now. Out of control. Whether you're a Christian or not, 
Maybe you feel frustrated in your present experience, struggling with life. This chapter helps us to see how we can not just have an ultimate hope, but a peace now, and also find real joy in our circumstances. But we'll see that the key to the chapter is keeping perspective. So we're going to see three ways this chapter helps us to have a right view. Firstly, a right view of life, a right view of God, and a right view of, God, of judgment. A right view of life. We've seen over the last couple of weeks that we are creatures constrained by time. We recognize that our life is fleeting. It's obvious. We will die. We will ultimately recognize that our endeavors are limited. They will be lost. So we can't become sentimental about the here and now of this world. If I invest all my hopes and dreams and emotions in what's happening now, I will ultimately be disappointed. That's what we've seen in the first two chapters. So as we look at the first eight verses, have a look down. They remind us of the march of time. But they also warn us not to be cynical either. See, as you look at that poem in the first eight verses, just read through it again. You could be so cynical, couldn't you? With every new birth. Well, it really just brings pain of one more death. For every flower or vegetable you plant, you'll have to uproot weeds around it. If you continue on in that way of reading, you'll just become emotionally hardened to the things of this life. See, whilst to some extent that is the reality of this world, we're not meant to be emotionally numbed by the whole thing. Look at verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. See, there is a right time to weep, a right time to laugh. We're not meant to be numb to these experiences. God has made this world for us to enjoy, and even though it's not as it was meant to be, there's plenty for us still to engage with. But sometimes that can be a real tension of our experience, can't it? God has made everything beautiful in its time. But look down, he's also set eternity in the human heart. And yet we can't fathom, we can't understand how those two things relate. We see that there are good things in this world that are there to rightly be enjoyed. And we know inherently that God's in control of all things. And actually we have deep within us the concept of those things being redeemed, brought back to how they were meant to be. But the burden is that we can't quite understand how our present experience of the day-to-day fits. When we're tired and works hard, when family life is a struggle, when you face real disappointment. See, we swing between being cynical and saying, nothing in this world matters. Don't get attached. Don't invest. Don't be too concerned because there's an ultimate thing. And being sentimental, overemphasizing the now, enjoying these good things more than they're meant to be enjoyed, more than they're meant to be now. 
I um, picked up Archie from the hospital on Tuesday. Archie um, is our intern at Town Church and works for Christians in Sport. He, um, you might know, was in uh, an accident playing rugby last weekend. Um, he'd been in the hospital since Saturday. I got there um, later on in the week. He'd had two surgeries. He'd been told he'd have to have a further surgery. Um, when I got there, well, as I was driving, I was thinking, how, how do I approach Archie with the best godly mindset to be realistic about the now, but encouraging about the reality of the future? It's right that he's disappointed. It's right that he's sad in the context of what's gone on. But as I was driving towards the hospital, I was slightly nervous to get that right balance. How could I best help Archie in the light of the circumstances? See, it would be so insensitive, wouldn't it, to waltz in to Archie's room and go, Archie, do you know what? It's brilliant that health doesn't really matter, isn't it? Archie, it's brilliant, isn't it, that rugby's not the ultimate thing in this world, isn't it? Be so insensitive. No, there is a time to be sad. There's a time to share in that real pain. But it mustn't just stay there because it's not ultimate pain. See, we tread a fine line. And it's not just in hard times we tread that fine line. When we celebrate our achievements or the joys of family and friends, do we celebrate a good, God-given gift in its right context? Or are we in danger of promoting it to something more than that? Are we in danger of promoting it to be in God's place? We need to keep a right view of life. But that means if we have that right view of life, there will always be a tension. It's a burden in our heart. That's what it calls it in the passage, because we both see the now of our circumstances, a right place for certain things. We feel the joy and pain of things in this world. And we've been made aware of the eternity of how God is in control of all things and will pull all things together. But it's a tension, because the reality is we will always ask ourselves the question, well, what do I do about that now? Wonder if you feel that tension in life. Wonder where it is that you feel that tension, what you're unsure about. Where you feel pain and you're not sure what God's doing about it. See, it's crucial that we have as well a right view of God. Actually, Ecclesiastes says the only way we can tread that fine line I spoke about rightly is when we have a right view of God. How could we possibly have the right mindset in the midst of frustration of not knowing what's going on, not knowing the plan or purpose of my life right now? How can we have peace when we don't know what's coming next, when we don't know what's around the corner? Well, we've seen so clearly in the first two chapters that we couldn't possibly find it in our own work, in our own endeavours. Look back at chapter 2, verse 24. We'll find it when we see it is from the hand of God. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. 
we'll find it when we see it is the gift of God. See, our purpose is to rightly receive from God. The way in which we can flourish in uncertain circumstances is knowing that God is in complete control. How will we do that? When we have a right view of him. Just scan through verses 9 to 14. Look at what God is doing. He has laid, he has made, he has set, he has done. God is active, he is in complete control and yet we can't seem to fathom it, verse 11. Everything he does will endure forever, nothing added to it and nothing taken away. God is in control. And if we're going to not just cope but flourish in our circumstances, we need to see that we receive those very circumstances from a God who is in complete control. And actually, in seeing how amazing he is, we need to trust and revere him. Look at verse 14. God does it so that people will fear him. Do you have a right fear of God that makes you worry less about your circumstances? When you're really concerned about what's coming next in this world, could you take time to fear God and fill your mind with what he's like? We know that God's purpose and his plan is all about the deliverance of his people for his glory. So we can trust in him that though the circumstances in any given moment might feel like they're pressing in, they might feel difficult. But we know he's in charge and he will stay in charge. But sometimes it's really difficult to keep that perspective when we can't see the bigger picture. Sometimes not seeing the bigger picture leaves us asking the question, life, what's happening? I just don't get it. I can't grasp life. I don't know if you ever watched Art Attack. A few smiles around the room. I'm, I'm glad. If you didn't, Art Attack was a program where Neil Buchanan taught people how to do art. Now, I loved the program Art Attack. I don't know why, because I didn't really like art. And I never, I don't think, made a single thing that he showed you how to do on the program. But I loved Art Attack. I loved the way he engaged with making things. And my favorite thing about Art Attack was the big Art Attack. Neil Buchanan. In fact, I've got a picture of Neil Buchanan. Neil Buchanan would take a couple of minutes, no, actually a really long time, to build a massive project really big. He'd start and you'd watch him putting things in the right place, going through the process. Sometimes he'd get individuals to help just lay things out exactly right. And you'd watch big art attack going on with some great music. And the whole time you'd be thinking, what's it going to be? What is he making? As he bent down and just got a, rolled up a towel and bent it at exactly the right angle, being so precise, you'd watch and you'd think, why does it need to be quite like that? What is this going to be? And you'd watch and you'd watch 
and suddenly it would get to the point where he'd stand with his creation, arms out wide, as in the moment the big art attack is revealed. And I couldn't help but think, as I watched big art attacks like that, those people that he got to help him lay things out in exactly the right place. As I sat there and I was thinking, what's it going to be? That frustration, that not knowing what it would turn out like. Only when it was completely finished would the camera zoom out and you'd get the full picture and it would make sense why every little towel was wrapped in exactly the right way. See, the world is something like Neil Buchanan's big art attack. In the midst of the process, sometimes we just can't see the bigger picture. It can feel frustrating to not see the perspective of why it is that something has to be like that. But God is pulling together the bigger picture. And what matters most is that we trust him. How will I have a right view of life when the circumstances are extreme, when things are going so well? And it's hard to remember that I'm not in control. When things are going so badly and I can't work out where we're going to go next. Redundancy, uncertainty, illness, bereavement, promotion, bonus. What did Archie and I have to say as we discussed Ecclesiastes 3 as we pulled away from the hospital? Yes, there is a time to be frustrated. Yes, there is a time to weep. Yes, there is a time to feel pain but not ultimately. Ecclesiastes 3 says you can flourish in life's circumstances, knowing that although right now you might not understand the bigger picture, God is at work, he is in control, and he wants you to receive these circumstances and revere him. And right now, whether your personal circumstances feel like a mess, or whether it feels like you're winning at life. Sometimes you might find yourself asking life, what's the point? Archie and I talked and listened to a few things on on Ecclesiastes 3, and we talked about a picture that lots of people have used as they've spoken about Ecclesiastes 3, similar to this, of how um, this life is like a rich tapestry Uh, here in the passage it it says perfect beauty, that while now we might only see the close-up of how nitty-gritty and imperfect life feels, God ultimately brings it together in perfect beauty. I read this, which I thought was really helpful. God is not being unkind to us, not sharing the big picture. The point is that we are not built to understand the big picture, Precisely because we live in time and God does not. If we could see the end from the beginning and understand how a billion lives and a thousand generations and unspeakable sorrows and untold joys are all woven into a tapestry of perfect beauty, then we would be God. Instead, 
we've got to recognise our position. Look back to chapter 2, verse 24. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? The point is that we might eat, drink, we might live, work, face the frustration and toil of the curse in this world to recognise that it comes from the hand of God, to recognise and so fear, rightly, God. And I realise that in some circumstances that might be really hard. Not just a bit frustrating, not just toilsome, but genuinely difficult, painful. Whether you're really a victim or you're hurt by some injustice in this world, that might feel like an unsatisfying answer, but it's only unsatisfying when we don't see quite what God is like. And so then it becomes important that as we have a right view of God, we also have a right view of his judgment. Look at verse 15. Part of having a right view of God is knowing his perfect justice. God will call everything to account. Remember we said how life under the sun describes life in this world. Now, life because of the curse in Genesis 3. That means that in this world, life under the sun today, justice and judgment is replaced with wickedness, there it says in that verse. We see that in the world all around us, don't we? Sometimes it makes us cry out. Maybe you even know that personally. But we saw two weeks ago that the Bible storyline introduces Jesus as the one who will deliver his people from the curse. Ultimately, the Bible speaks of a time when Jesus comes back and he will deliver his people ultimately from the curse and the frustration. There'll be a time where we can enjoy the good things God has given in their right place. We won't be able to lose sight of just how amazing God is. But Jesus will also return to execute perfect justice, finally. God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. See, when Jesus comes back, every deed will be judged. Our only hope for us is that when God looks at us, he sees the perfect sacrifice of his son Jesus on the cross. In God's great mercy, he spares us from that judgment that we deserve if we truly trust in Jesus. Well, what does that mean for now in the circumstances of life? Well, not only do things have their place, a right time to enjoy things, a right time to feel sad, sorrow, but actually, actions really matter because they're the set in the context of God's judgment. They're set in the context of God's perfect justice. It pushes against everything that says, because nothing lasts, ultimately there's no consequence of your actions. Just get on with it, do what you like. See, those first eight verses are sometimes read at, at funerals of people who just live life however they want, with no consequence. But a right view of judgment leaves us 
actually hopeless on our own before God. Remember we said before that this book is accounted written before Jesus came onto the scene in the biblical storyline. But we see throughout that he is being pointed to. In fact, without, Ecclesiast- without Jesus, Ecclesiastes 3 becomes quite unsatisfying. The end of the chapter leaves us asking two questions in verse 21 and 22. Who knows? Who can bring them to see? It's like the writer's calling out for deliverance. It's like the writer's calling out for this perfect justice. We see that's offered to people as Jesus dies on the cross. But do you ever feel impatient? Do you ever feel like you wish that would come now? (coughs) Is there anything more frustrating than having your photo taken? Waiting to have your photo taken. Whether it be in front of the school photographer or whether it be in a family photo shoot trying to get everyone facing the right way. I um, remember at school the big school photo. No doubt you'll remember even now if school was a long way way off. The, The time it takes to get everyone in the right place. To wait and wait. And you just didn't know when the photo would be taken. It felt like an endless stream of waiting till that perfect shot was going to be taken. I remember my um, primary school, Hillshot School, had quite tight stairs. And I remember sitting on the stairs, waiting for the stairs to be filled up so that the perfect photo was ready, so that everybody was on the stairs. I can remember how long it felt like it took to get people in the right place, to make sure these, these tight stairs had everyone on and in the right place, making sure no one was missed. At the front, it was frustratingly slow. You just didn't know how long it was going to take because you couldn't see the progress. You couldn't see what was going on behind you. In fact, probably the only person who could see was the photographer as they're waiting for the older children to file in at the back, the caretaker right in the middle at the back as he stood. And actually, we waited and waited because it was so important for the photographer that everyone was looking, everyone was there, and nobody was missing out. See, part of the reason God doesn't call all things to a close now, part of the reason God doesn't exercise his perfect justice in bringing Jesus back to judge right now, is because the process of arranging the bigger picture that we can't see is out of our hands. We don't quite see where it is. God is patient with those who have not yet come to trust in him. 2 Peter says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So, as we look at Ecclesiastes 3 and we feel the frustration, as we have a right view of those three things, that's the comfort and the challenge of Ecclesiastes 3. When it feels like God's not there, when it feels like our circumstances are getting the better of us, 
when it feels like we're hugely insignificant, God is at work. And a right view of life means that our circumstances matter. We shouldn't have a cynical view of life and not engage with the joy and the pain that, throws, that life throws at us. But we shouldn't have a sentimental view of life and make those things matter too much either. But we should let our experience be one of receiving our circumstances in the right way from God and revering him because he is in complete control. And when that's unsatisfying, when that's painful, we must remember that God will ultimately execute perfect justice. And the only reason that that's not been done yet is because he's merciful in letting people come and repent. And until that day, until that day that he does, we have to keep a right view, a right perspective on trusting God through our circumstances. A journey best enjoyed, it says, when we eat, drink and find satisfaction in the midst of our toil and frustration, when we see that it's from the hand of God and we find joy in him. Let me pray. Father, please might that be true of us, that we would find joy in you as we recognise that these things come from your hand. When it feels frustrating, when we're not sure what's next around the corner, will we have a right view of life? Will we have a right view of you and your character, Father? And Father, we ask that you'd give us a right view of your justice as we look and see how you will pull all things together. Amen.